get out of it. And when I do all the Masonic lectures, I, I, I told the Brother Masons that, you know, don't, don't get caught up in your own little bubble. Now, don't think that, you know, your lodge is the only thing that exists, and that's where masonry is, and that's all there is to it. And, and I really believe that racism and bigotry and, and hatefulness, I think some of these brethren may not, maybe that's just the way they were brought up, but I believe if they really experienced masonry on a worldwide level, I believe that would change their heart. When they realize that they're not alone, that there are others that do it differently, but they're the same. There's something that binds us, that fellowship, that common thread, uh, regardless of what language, regardless of the color of your skin or what faith you believe in. I think that if they were to experience a little bit, even, even just a little bit of what I've experienced in my world, I think that would be the greatest tool of changing these people's minds. And, and I really believe that every man can be changed. Uh, I think there's good in all. And I believe that, I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that, you know, sometimes you're just caught up in that world, in that bubble, and that's all you know. That's all you've ever seen, and that's all you relate to. And I think if you really expand your horizons and open your doors, you really say to yourself, wow. Hello, and welcome to the Working Tools Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Right Worship Brother Moises Gomez, the Grand Historian of the Grand Lodge of New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our opinions and thoughts are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions, either here on YouTube or on our Facebook page. We'd also appreciate a thumbs up and especially any comments on our videos. back here in the second segment, but uh, looking forward to another uh, 30 minutes of uh, good fellowship and conversation. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Colbeth. I'm a Mason in Washington, and we're joined, of course, by our two co-hosts, uh, Worst Brother Steve Chung and Connor Massey, Brother Connor Massey out of the British Company of Yukon and British Company and Yukon. Yeah, I said that right. <laughs> I didn't mess up. I didn't. I'm not going to say where you're from, Steve, because I'll mess it up. I didn't mess it up when I introduced you to, to Moises, but I will on air. Unfortunately, we're not. We're missing one of our hosts tonight. Uh, Matt Apple is uh, has a family emergency this evening, so he's not with us. We give him our thoughts and prayers, and hopefully, he's doing okay. Uh, but again, we're joined tonight by Right Worship Brother Moises Gomez, and uh, again, as Grand Historian and a uh, Flash Gordon Mason, if you want to call. He's he, as we were talking in the previous segments and in the, mm -hmm. in the blue room, uh, he was saying that people think he's got twenty years of masonry under his belt, and he's relatively. Young Mason, as things go, not quite as young Mason as Connor, uh, who is a super new Mason, but but he he also knows he, he's he's young in age and young in masonry. So there, there we got, you got both. And, and people about, usually get that many years uh, concept by someone's passion and right. someone's knowledge, and you must absorb it real uh, real quick, Mo, because. <clears throat> Um, that's a lot of knowledge to store in, uh, in the little brains that we have. Oh, believe me, it's, it's rough, but uh, I do enjoy I think my passion is if I love something, I really, I really stick to it. And I do love Freemasonry. 
and I really do everything I can to possibly learn. And I never stop learning. There's always something new to learn. I don't know it all, and I don't think I ever will, but there's always, always opportunity to learn. Well, I was fortunate. My first experience with Moises was several years ago. I was still pretty new Mason, if you will. I'm, I'm kind of still a new Mason in 2008 as well uh, when I joined. And it's kind of similar. It sounds like it had similar path as Moises. I went in as a junior deacon and moved, moved my way up through master the same time. But at some point in there, I don't remember exactly what year it was now, but you came to visit and uh, presented our, one of our lodges in our district. I think it was in Kent. And, Kent Lodge, correct. Yep, the, yep, most, yep. I think it was Most Worshipable. Jim Mendoza was actually Grandmaster. I think it was stepping out in a, in a day or two uh, at, at that time, but yeah. Yeah, and you uh, came and talked with us about your experience during 9-11 and literally being physically there, and, and we talked a little bit about that. We wanted to, to kind of open up and have you talk about that. I'm sure we'll have lots of questions as you go, but it, you know, if there's uh, however you want to discuss that and talk about it, that'd be great. No, not a problem. Well, uh, again, uh, my name is Moses Gomez. I'm a member of uh, Atlas Pythagoras Lodge in Mid-10 in New Jersey. Uh, but I also work for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Uh, I've been there for 32 years now, and I'm part of the Emergency Service Unit uh, stationed at the George Washington Bridge. Uh, oddly enough, named for the first president and, and most famous Mason here in the United States. Uh, but uh, working for the Port Authority, I you know, was present uh, for the 93 and 9-11 attacks uh, as an employee of the Port Authority. At the time, I was stationed at the Holland Tunnel, which was the first vehicular ventilated tunnel ever created in 1927 for the purpose of moving cars on the ground. So it was, the brand, it was a brand new concept. Uh, the Ford Model T was taking off and we needed to build tunnels instead of ferries. And the, but the problem was, how do you get the exhaust out? And the Holland Tunnel divide that came up with that answer of being able to exhaust and pump in fresh air. Uh, so that's where I was stationed. Uh, 10 years I was underground <laughs> at the Holland Tunnel. Uh, they, you know, they promised me it was going to be a a, a great career, a wonderful uh, experience, and then they buried me under the Holland Tunnel under the Hudson River for ten years. And I tell how you, how long? How long is the tunnel? Uh, the the tunnel going into New York is about a mile and a half, and the tunnel coming out is about a mile and three quarters. So they're just under two miles uh, underground. I mean, they're not the, the they're not the biggest or the, the longest, uh, but it was the first. And, and every major tunnel in the world is based off of the operations and the, and the concept of the Holland Tunnel. Uh, I mean, again, we opened in 1927 for the first time. So uh, it was an innovative engineering feat of marvel that they actually did that. And that's what was named after Clifford Holland, who created that idea. Uh, now, again, I don't know what as aspects you want to know about it, but unfortunately, uh, the Port Authority owned, operated, and built the World Trade Centers. We built them the first time, and we built them the second time. It's our building. Uh, we operate it. We 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 run the, the operations of it. We we now have a leasing company that leases the the, the building, but for the most part, it's it's our property. Uh, the 16 acres of the World Financial Center belong to the Port Authority. We manage. We operate it. Uh, we're self-insured. Uh, so not only did we pay for it the first time, we had to pay out of pocket for the second time. Uh, and and again, I was a part of both of those experiences. Uh, <clears throat> the latter of which I do a lecture on, which kind of. Uh, depicts my my time and my moment there, uh, the many months and, and weeks that we spent there uh, through my eyes and my perspective. Again, that's just one of thousands of stories of thousands of eyes that experienced it through their own eyes, but I'm just one of those individuals. <clears throat> so uh, again, it's it, the 93, uh, it, it was just a, 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 a unique Experience. We have never experienced a terrorist attack on our home soil by a foreign entity or a foreign power. 
it was a group of terrorists who were operating in Jersey City. Uh, they had rented some office space above a movie theater, and they orchestrated the plan similar to what Timmy McVeigh did, you know, load up a band of explosives, drive it through, and blow it up. Uh, they drove through the Holland Tunnel. They headed south towards the World Trade Center, entered our parking garage, relative ease, no security, no cameras. Uh, and then there, when they got to the B3 level, they detonated and blew the massive explosion, which took out about three levels. Uh, and, and for the most part, their intent was to cause as much harm, as much disruption of the financial center of the world. And if you don't know that that, that part of New York City is the heart and soul of the financial of the world, you know, that, that is the New York Stock Exchange, that is every major commodities brokerage house. You know, there are many uh, brokerage houses around the world, but New York City is the heart and soul, the beating of, of the of commodities exchange around the world. So, uh, and the World Financial Center and the World Trade Center were part of that as well. So it, it was a, a major disruption in that part. The other part of it is that people don't realize that it, it's a city in itself. Each tower occupied 25,000 people. Uh, and a quarter of a million people go through its underground subway hub every day. Uh, it's a major hub. Uh, from that particular hub, you can go to an airport, you can go to a bus station, uh, you can go to a bus terminal, you can go to the Penn Station, get a train. So if you get to the World Trade Center, you can practically get to anywhere around the world uh, because it's not a train or a bus or a subway that'll take you to a major uh, point that'll take you somewhere else. So it's a very important hub. Uh, like I said, hundreds of thousands of people use it every day. So you've got to put yourself in that frame of mind. Uh, the, the, you know, when this bomb goes off, uh, the catastrophic damage that it did, but it's not so much what it did on the ground. It's it's the heat, the smoke, uh, power went out, elevators ceased to operate. Uh, there was a lot of faulty issues. You know, some areas had no emergency lighting. We had no sprinklers. Uh, so there was a lot of issues uh, in trying to evacuate thousands of people from a building that's 110 stories high. It's quite it's quite an arduous task. And although you say to yourself, we're going down, still trying to run down 110 flights can be just as arduous as running up. I mean, people were complaining of chest pain, uh, exhaustion, uh, you know, asthmatic, people who had issues with as asthma or asthmatics were, were suffering. Uh, some people had heart attacks. Uh, some people had, you know, passed out and fainted because it was just too much for them to bear. So it's a, that was the main really focus of that, uh, of that rescue was the, the buildings didn't collapse, of course, uh, and our prime directive was to rescue people, get everybody out of the building as quickly and safely as possible. And of course, that meant going up the stairs and bring everybody down, clearing floor for floor, evacuating everybody to the street level. Uh, most of the injuries were smoke inhalation. That was pretty much the, the extent of it. Some people fell and tripped and some people got hurt and, you know, and the stampede and nervousness and, and recklessness of people, you know, just trying to scurry out quickly. Uh, but most of the injuries were smoke inhalation. Uh, and a lot of other injuries were due to health issues. You know, someone maybe was, like I said, as, asthmatic. Uh, someone was just maybe obese or, you know, elderly. So these things compounded upon fear, being scared in a terrorist situation, 110 stories up. It's a lot. It's a lot to do. And, and I guess we all learned a little bit. I think the, the fact that, you know, all these agencies weren't communicating with each other. There was no way to, to actually talk to each other. Information wasn't really passed on to each other. Uh, we realized that we were prepared, but we really weren't prepared. And, you know, we, our hospitals were overwhelmed. And you say, wow, how could New York City be overwhelmed? You have so many hospitals. And, but again, it's, it's, it's you know, you're sitting eight, nine million people, uh, and you're 
you know, you're throwing three, four thousand people that are injured into that into that you know first responder emergency mode uh, for injuries. It's it's a lot. It's overwhelming. Uh, you know, you, you need ambulances, you need doctors, you need transportation, uh, you need medics in the field. Uh, it's overwhelming. Not to mention that the rest of the city is still going on. So, uh, but the first one is usually overshadowed by the second one uh, because the second one actually was the one that did the most damage, uh, finally collapsing under its own weight. But again, we nobody would have imagined that you know eight years later we would wake up and get a call saying, "Hey, uh, the towers are under attack." Uh, now, for me, the first one plane, I just thought it was a mistake. Maybe it was an accident. Buildings in New York have been hit before by planes. Many planes have missed the World Trade Center in, in bad weather or inclement weather and, and fog. Uh, it's it's not a rarity. It has happened before. So okay, maybe it was a clear day. Maybe the plane pilot didn't know what he was doing and he struck the plane and helped you know the building. Uh, but when 16 minutes later, the other one hit, we knew something was going on. Uh, and then it started coming in on all channels that the Pentagon was hit and the White House was hit and the, very, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge was hit. You know, we were hearing all kind of crazy stuff. And that really threw us for a loop because we were like, wow, uh, you know, we're under attack. But how, did, how can this be? How can we let our guard down this, this way? Uh, you know, and of course, later on, we found out it was just three, three locations uh, that were hit. But... Again, uh, the, 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 some of us who were there for the first one had some sort of knowledge and experience, and we knew that we were going to have to evacuate people. We knew we were going to have to climb the stairs and bring people down and what to kind of expect, uh, but we never, ever anticipated the buildings coming down. I really, if you would have told me then that these buildings would come down the way they did, I would have never believed it. I would have said, nah, it's impossible. It just can't. It can happen. Uh, and I think that's what caught a lot of people off guard, you know, and we were very lucky uh, that it hit at the time they did. I think if these planes would have hit around one o'clock when the buildings would have been in full occupancy, we could have, we could have had tens of thousands of people killed. Uh, you know, we were lucky that it hit before nine and the, and the second one hit about nine Oh two. So most people hadn't gotten to work yet. Uh, and when the first one hit many people who were on their way to work said, Oh, wait a minute. I'm not, I'm not going there. So that actually helped. Uh, and I believe that actually kept the death toll count less than what it was. But if, if this would have been the middle of the day, 12, 1 o'clock, God knows how many people would have been, you know, murdered on that day and killed. Uh, and again, it's just, a, you know, we went through the motions. Uh, first was rest, getting people out, evacuating. Uh, when the buildings came down, we went to a, a rescue mode, trying to retrieve those trapped. We were hoping that maybe people would be trapped alive and we can pull them out. Uh, and that's when we uh, came to the realization that, about 12 or so people were actually pulled from the rubble. The last two being the Thursday after the attacks, there were two police officers that were buried alive uh, and we were actually able to find them. Uh, and after that, that was it. Nobody else was able, ever found them again alive to my knowledge. And it's hard to imagine was at that moment you realize how many people died. You know, it, it goes through your mind. Like how, we know how many people work in this building. We know at any given time there's seven buildings that comprise the World Trade Center. I mean, with transportation, people going and coming to work and coming from work, people working in the building, people just walking along the streets, how many did we lose? Uh, and, and that wouldn't, numbers wouldn't come. I mean, in the beginning, they were astronomical. The people were just throwing all kinds of numbers out there, you know, 10,000, 15,000. But uh, luckily, it was what it was, and it wasn't that high, you know, as people at first thought. But uh, again, it was, it really hit home when we realized that the first one attack, we had thousands of victims. And this one here, if for the most part you didn't get out, 
you, if you didn't get up before the building went down, you didn't get out. You most likely lost your life. Uh, and, and, and to think that we only rescued 12 or so from the rubble, that really, that really dampened our, our efforts and really was a rude awakening as to what we were going to expect and what, how much we had actually lost on that day. That, that the number, I mean, the first thing that came into my mind was Pearl Harbor. I said, this is a Pearl Harbor moment. This is something that's going to be engraved in the minds of American people, American history forever, a day that will definitely live in infamy, as was the attacks on Pearl Harbor. Uh, so, I mean, it's, 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 and the fact that it was done on civilians, I mean, for the most part, not that the military is less, but when you join the military, you know, you're joining that, the, the possibility of you going to combat and losing your life is a possibility, uh, but no one would imagine that innocent civilians was usually like off, was off target. We, you know, civilians were never targeted, you know, military. Okay. We fight. You said you go into war, you go into battle. Uh, it's expected. You're going to have losses. but when innocent civilians died that day and they were attacked, it wasn't a military base, it wasn't a battle. Uh, and that was hard to comprehend that there was, you know, mothers, fathers, you know, ordinary citizens that were just coming and going to work uh, their ordinary day, woke up that morning and, and they were snuffed out because of, of, of a terrorist attack like this. Uh, and that happened right under our nose. They were living and working under us. They were living among us. They were individual cells all around the, all, all around the United States. Uh, they they actually were were training in in in, in airfields and <clears throat> learning how to fly planes, <clears throat> and I say that because they weren't really learning to fly a plane. They just were actually learning how to fly it in flight. And it's amazing how lax our security was. If you were to go to a, a school now and tell the pilot or the instructor, "I want to learn to fly, but I just want to learn to fly the plane in the air. I don't care about taking off and landing." Well, right now, that would raise every alarm possible. What's the purpose? If you can't take off on the ground, how can you fly a plane in the air? And some of these individuals were trained that way. They actually went there and said, I just want to learn how to fly a plane in the air. And they took them up. Okay, take over. Yeah, we'll show you how to fly. And with no intentions of ever landing or taking off because they knew their plan was to take over the plane and fly it midair into their target. Uh, and again, our, our, our security was, was laxed. Our Another big area that was lax was the intercommunication between agencies. Uh, you know, our government agencies weren't speaking to each other. There was no mode of communication between each other. Uh, you know, the highest ranking CIA, FBI, a lot of these institutions weren't talking to each other. Uh, you know, and, and they weren't sharing information. Now, we've created joint terrorist task force teams. We've created, you know, Homeland Security. And it's their responsibility to disseminate all information from all these agencies, even around the world, Interpol, Scotland Yard, and then bring it down to its lowest levels uh, in, in a local community or in a county or in a state level to, again, be prepared if something was to happen. But back then, that wasn't the case. I mean, we had agencies in the city of New York that couldn't even speak to each other. Like a lot of our units couldn't speak to FDNY, and they couldn't speak to us, and we couldn't speak to NYPD. And, you know... It, it was amazing, but it, it was a wake-up call. Uh, you know, of course, it changed the whole way of our life now. If you ever fly, you know, all the changes that you have to go through, TSA, check, take your shoes off, take your belt. Uh, so we've all paid a little bit of a price uh, in delays and in a little bit of discomfort. But overall, it's for our benefit and our safety. And I, I think it's, uh, it's a growing and evolving uh, plan and, and, and education that we have to go through ourselves, that we have, this is what we have to deal with going forward. Uh, but nobody ever, you know, now we see, you know, 
you know, if you see something, say something. And if you see something suspicious, say it, speak out. You know, before it wasn't, you know, everybody, it was, that wasn't the case. It was, you know, you could sit with a duffel bag or a backpack in, in front of you and nobody was saying anything. Okay, maybe somebody left it there, what the heck with it. Now, it, you know, everybody's cognizant of that and it, it raises eyebrows and, and raises all that uh, suspicion and, and calls. But, uh, well, I, I got to admit, it was a, uh, I must say, I was glad I was a part of, the, of that experience. I, I, I think it, it awoken something in me. And although in my lecture, of course, like many other people will probably talk about their experience, it's always about the dark side and what happened. And it's not, it does, the outcome is not great. It, it, you know, it's a horrible outcome. Many people lost their lives. It's, it's very dark and gloomy. But I always like to end it on positive notes and try to speak about how we evolved as a people, as a nation, and as a fraternity how we grew from this. You know, it's not always something, you know, negative, but I've always believed that out of something bad comes good. Out of darkness comes light. You know, just like the mythical bird phoenix that rises from the ashes again to be reborn again another day. And I believe, you know, we suffered, but we picked ourselves up. And for a short moment in American history that had not been seen since the great generation of World War II, did America truly unite itself under and behind the cause? And I believe that we should be there that all the way and not wait for that catastrophic moment or that horrific moment for us to all be one family and one nation again. You know, at that moment, that's the beauty of what I saw. I saw, you know, people of all different colors and cultures and creeds and faiths come together, uh, united against this one common threat. And it's sad that it takes a catastrophe to bring the American public and the people together. Uh, as you see now, what's going on now, how we're tearing ourselves apart and, uh, and, and hopefully something good will come out of it. But again, it, it's always, you know, we shouldn't have to be there. We should really try to always respect and tolerate each other as the craft of masonry does. And I try to do not analogies with how my experience was during 9-11, which I was not a Freemason at the time. But now going back, I realize that many aspects of what actually transpired and why it happened and the outcomes is truly unique in masonry where masonry is a wonderful perfect institution that sometimes has imperfect members in it and just like any other profession of faith there is bad and good no matter where you go doctors police lawyers medics you know contractors politicians but i believe in focusing on the one you know, focus on that one individual. Don't lump everybody in because we wear the same uniform or we wear the same outfit or we do the same job. Uh, and again, this is the beauty that I saw that came out of 9-11, that we, you know, supported each other. We came to grips with what happened. Uh, we strove to, to unite ourselves, whether it was singing, you know, the, the God Bless America at sporting venues, uh, whether it was, you know, the absolute, practically running out of American flags. Companies couldn't produce them fast enough. People were just really supportive in that, in that aspect that, you know, we are a nation, we did suffer, but we're going to come back stronger than ever. And we did. I believe we did come back better and stronger. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful things that came out of it. I just wish that it would continue that way and people remember what happened so that we can continue moving forward as a nation and not wait for the next catastrophe to happen to say, oh, okay, now we have to come together again. And it's so sad to see that uh, what happened. But 9-11 did change my, my perspective of the way I feel and believe and, and see in people. And I, I try to see the best in people. You know, okay, you've done bad. Okay, but I can't change that. So let's get past that. 
I want to see the best of you now. You know, you, you made a mistake. Let's move on. Everybody makes mistakes, but I want to see the best. I want to see the good in you. I want to see what you can do. The, give, show me the best in you. Let's move forward on that. And that's what I want to drive out of people. And so I, I'm hoping that, you know, throughout all that tragedy, that that's what you got out of that. You got to see the best in the people that were there on the ground. Um, that's all we could really hope for, uh, sitting back uh, uh, over in this part of the world watching and hearing. Well, to, to bring a little bit home, there's a neat story that our, our mutual friend, most of our brother, Jim Mendoza, when he was the presiding master of one of our historic lodges here in Washington uh, he, last year, he told a story of the Gander, Newfoundland, where the planes landed there yes. over, yes. over 6,000, 6,700, according to the story. Uh, what an amazing story of this small town bringing in all of these people and just taking care of them from all over the world. Some didn't speak, you know, they couldn't, didn't have, they didn't know the languages and, but they still took care of them. And there's a Masonic connection too, because there's a lodge there, as I understand it. That's the assisted. You maybe, Moses, maybe you know more about the story than I do, but it's just, it's a really neat connection. Well, I do talk about that in my lecture at the end. That's the, one of the positives. And if uh, there is a, a musical out called Come From Away, which deals with the story of, this was a, 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 an airfield that was, I believe, used in World War II where it was a, the, the bombers can leave here into the European campaign and land in Newfoundland. And from there was the closest and the last point to take off and then hit the continent of Europe. So you can actually, it was the last piece of land you can actually land on, refuel, and then fly across. Uh, so the, the, the airfields were big enough to hold massive planes. And the planes coming in from Europe, including military planes, uh, what happened was on 9-11, the Federal Aviation Administration had created a code uh, which is called ATC Zero, Air Traffic Control Zero, uh, had never been implemented before. And the sole purpose of this was to activate it as an emergency beacon. Uh, and it goes throughout all air traffic controls, all flight responders, uh, trans transponders on planes, with one instruction and one instruction only. Land immediately at the next available airport, regardless where you're coming or you're going. So when, when the president initiated that, that order, they hit that. Uh, planes were immediately had to ground themselves regardless where they were. Uh, and this was to clear the airspace of a potential threat. If any plane was left, then we knew that that was a potential threat and we would meet it with, with fighter planes, uh, which is the case that happened in the one in Pennsylvania, which we'll get to later on. But uh, this planes coming from Europe had to land in Nova Scotia, in Newfoundland, and this small community grew by 65% in a matter of hours because planes had to land there because they had nowhere else to go. They couldn't enter the continental United States. Uh, so they landed there. It's a small little community. I think they only had one or two small hotels. Uh, and they 6,600 people descended on this small little community. So the beauty was it that uh, the people of the community of Gander, Newfoundland, opened their homes, opened their community, and accepted all these individuals into their homes, into their businesses. Uh, they fed them. They housed them. They sheltered them. Uh, at no expense and no cost. And, and, and again, it's the beauty of humanity coming together at a time of crisis that really is what shines the best. And that, that really showed how humans can love and tolerate each other as Masons do in a lodge. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. And, and it's such a, a wonderful story that when airports opened up about a week later, five or six days later, uh, these people went home and many come back every year 
on the anniversary to come back and meet those friends that they've met for the last, you know, 19 years uh, to share fellowship and, and reunite with them again for their kindness and their support. Uh, and again, this Broadway musical, which is traveling the country, was created based on that beautiful story of how humans and humanity can open up their arms and can, at the worst time in a person's life, it can be the most positive time. And, uh, and again, it, it's a wonderful story. And if you ever get to see the musical, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story of what actually happened. It's just one of many wonderful instances that happened. Uh, but that's the story of how that actually came to be and, and why that community was so uh, inundated because of, of the location of that airfield. Uh, you know, a lot of planes landed and a lot of them had a tough time taking off because you can always land a bigger plane, but you may not have enough runway to take off. And, and in some cases that was the case, but uh, at that moment, in order for us to find out who was left, we don't know how many hijackers there were. I mean, it could have been 20 planes. And in order to determine who was left and who wasn't an enemy, those that didn't heed the call were potential threats and were met head on with fighters. Uh, and in Pennsylvania, uh, and this is a story that I always say, you know, it's one of those 9-11 stories that you really don't get to hear. But imagine yourself, you're the president, you're the vice president, you're an Air Force pilot, you've trained your whole life, mind, body, and soul to protect and defend American lives and the American constitution, the American nation against foreign enemies, domestic and foreign. And after all that training, after, after all that, that years of hard work, you have to focus all that energy on shooting down an American plane full of American citizens. Imagine what that pilot's got to go through with his head at that moment, that this is what I trained for, and now I'm going to use all my skill and training to kill Americans because it's going to save thousands more on the ground, the lesser of two evils. But it's still a horrible decision to have to make. And for the president and vice president to have to make that decision in office, you know, politics aside, nobody wants to be charged with leaving your presidency with having to give that call, that order, take an American plane out kill those 200, 300 American citizens on there who were there by coincidence. It wasn't that they chose to be there. It wasn't that they were part of that conspiracy. They just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and had to pay the ultimate price. Luckily, the plane crashed in Pennsylvania in a cornfield, killing nobody else because the, the people on board knew what was going on and they tried to take over the plane. And in that scuffle, the plane, the, the terrorists crashed the plane, uh, killing nobody else on the ground. Uh, but if that didn't happen, that plane would have been blown out of the air by an American pilot, an American Air Force pilot, and he would have to live with that for the rest of his life. And, and I say to myself, God, if that's, that's, that's the highlight of my entire Air Force career that I can speak on, I was the one that had to take out an American plane with American families on board. I mean, that's really, really hard. So it touches a lot of people in many, many ways that you never even imagine, not that you even, even those who weren't even there were affected all across the country, all across the world, 27 nations, lost citizens that day there. So it was not just an American attack. It was an attack on all citizens around the world, uh, on the way we live and our lifestyle and, and who we are. So again, but there's many wonderful stories. Uh, one of the greatest stories that I, I saw just in New York City, now there's a, a Jewish sect in New York City and they pay for their own ambulance service and it's called Hatsola. And they, if you're a, a Hasidic Jew, a Jewish, person, you can call that number and they'll come right away from you. Well, they were there at ground zero. They responded like all other ambulances from all over the country responded and, and to help. And while I was looking in the back of one, there was a Muslim woman 
in the back of that ambulance being treated by two Hasidic Jewish individuals. And at that moment, I said to myself, wow, you know, these individuals who attacked us are trying to ruin our way of life, our, our, our way of how America is. And yet here, you know, the, 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 the same, probably the same cause because of, of, of race, hatred, and, 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 and bias, and bigotry. And yet this ambulance, who clearly is paid for by the Jewish people of New York City for their own personal use, they paid for that. They opened up the doors and said, we're going to take anybody. And we knew we were attacked. You know, we knew we were attacked. We knew what was going on. They didn't turn away this woman. They accepted her. They treated her. They took her to a hospital. And I'm saying to myself, wow, here, amongst all this evil and, and all this carnage, that beauty shined forth. And these are the things that I see with my eyes and I saw. And, and that really inspired me to say, we, there is still hope. There is still good. Uh, and, and this nation will always overcome any obstacles or you know incidents that may happen again in the future, uh, and again, I just hope that people take these stories and take it to heart. And especially, you know, I advertise and I, I speak these stories because I want people to realize that. Don't wait until the wrong moment. Don't wait until you're backed in the corner. Don't wait until that next catastrophe to do the right thing, to be American, to really to, to extend that helping hand. Do it now. Do it while you're alive. Do it while you can. You know. There's an old saying that if you, if you witness something wrong or a crime being committed and you do nothing about it, you're just as guilty as the person committing it. And I believe that, there's, as Martin Luther King said, there's, the time is always right to do what is right. Don't wait for that next plane or terrorist attack. Do it now. Be that inspiration. Be that hope. It's there for the taking. And sadly, again, we we're, we're seem to be tearing ourselves apart again. Uh, but hopefully, I believe in the, that... Eventually, when all this settles and the cloud and dust settles, that we will arise much better than when we were before. And that I always strive and I always hope for the best in that. And I think 9-11 inspired me to believe that way. And in a way, by me speaking about it, not only helps me, but I believe I want to spread that word. Uh, I can't change the world, brethren. But if I can change one person, I've done my bit. I think I've done good. Uh, and, and regardless, I mean, if every Mason changes one person in their lifetime, and as I said, there's three or four million of us around the world, then that exponentially doubles and triples and quadruples every year. So in 10 years, you might have changed, you might have touched 30, 40 million lives. So again, it just takes one person. And, and Most one simple, you know, one simple pay it forward, you know, that kindness, random act of kindness, <clears throat> what we need today. And I, I think we need to look at the good that we all have inside us. And, and I think even though it was our darkest period, it showed our... Our, our true inner spirit and that spirit of American volunteerism, that, that patriotic spirit, that when we're pushed in the corner, when push comes to shove, we're going to come out the better of it. And I believe we did. Well, and we, so we what's should... this pin that you have? Uh, well, I, the, the, I'm going to try to show it up here so you all can see it. Uh, it's a commemorative 9-11 pin that I had made up. The, this is the Port Authority 9-11 flag uh, that flies at all our facilities. Uh, it's the, a silhouette of the two towers with an American flag. And if I believe the story right, one of our sign shop individuals kind of sketched it out and drew it. Uh, and it's become our symbol, the Port Authority. Uh, you know, all our facilities fly the state flags in New York, New Jersey, the Port Authority flag. And now we fly the 9-11 uh, flag, which has to be flown at all our facilities. Uh, and it's a, a pin I created. And usually uh, wherever I go and I give this lecture, I always hand out a pin. Uh, to commemorate, you know, so that you don't forget 
what happened on that day to remind us of, of that ill-fated day, uh, but more so to remind us uh, that we are humans, we are Americans, and we will always strive to do our best and that there is good in all of us and, and, and to reach down and show that kindness and goodness every day. And not just when that, when that horrible time comes. And I believe that's really, uh, you know, if you wear it to remind yourself that, you know, maybe today is my day to do a random act of kindness today. Uh, I'm not going to wait for that bomb to go off. I'm not going to wait for that terrorist to come. I'm not going to wait for that guy to cut me off, but I'm just going to do something nice today. And hopefully that's what I, 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 is my message to, to everybody that, you know, hopefully you take that pin, you wear it proudly to remind us of what happened, where we were at that time and where, how we came out of it and where we are today. And hopefully I believe in my heart that we're much better off today than we were back then. Uh, and hopefully we'll continue going forward that way. Well, All right, Worshipful Brother, that was absolutely amazing. Uh, I, I, I am the odd duck out here in, in the fact that I was too young to remember 9-11. Um, but uh, hearing you speak has been absolutely inspirational, and, and I can speak on behalf of my other co-hosts here that I'm, I'm sure it's touched them as much as it has touched me, if not more, for having lived through that and being able to remember it. Well, thank you, we, we certainly do appreciate your message of hope and inspiration and uh, hope that all of our listeners, regardless of your Masonic status, will uh, take that message and, and try to implement it in their daily lives. And so thank you all for listening to the Working Tools Masonic podcast today and have a great evening and a great week. <laughs>